Duke in the Final Four. You know, after, um, after Ohio State lost, there were 16% of brackets that were still okay for the billion dollars. And then after Duke lost, there were less than 2% of brackets remaining. And it took 24 games until nobody was eligible for the billion dollars, which I don't understand. I saw some stats, because I was thinking, well, why wouldn't somebody just hire a lot of people to make as many brackets as you can to get your, to, to win? But I, I don't know. I heard some ridiculous one in 126 billion odds or something. Say what? Oh, one entrance. Okay, and there are not enough people in the world to make that worth your while to win a billion dollars. Right? See, and it might happen next year. I think people are starting to think about this. A billion dollars goes a long way. Um, I actually had a really good time talking with people about the billion dollars. For some reason, since it, like there was a chance, right? I haven't filled out a bracket in probably eight years. I mean, technically, as a NCAA athlete, you're not allowed to because that's, you couldn't take the prize or you'd be ineligible. I would take an ineligibility to take a billion dollars. But I actually ended up not even filling out a, so I haven't done it for a long time and people, you can win a billion dollars. So I filled out a bracket for the first time in a long time because there's a part of me that you actually think, yeah, you could win a billion dollars. And so it, it sparked a lot of very fun conversations, though, um, with, with friends and people. And it became pretty annoying because everybody, oh, if I won a billion dollars, I'd pay off my loans. Well, duh. And, oh, yeah, well, I'd pay off debt for my family. And I get cars for me and all my friends. And, yeah, that's literally what everybody says. So eventually it got past the, okay, so you're going to do that, and then you still have whatever, however many millions of dollars that you still have for this. So then what are you going to do with it? And everybody at some point in time came to this realization that they have no idea what they would do with all this money. And it was one of these things where if you have every material possession at your disposal, well, then what are, what are you going to do with your life? And we've talked about this, right, with the treasure. This has come up all the time, and that's probably why this came up in my conversations with people, because we're talking about this, we're, we've been teaching about this at church, about our treasure, where do we find our treasure. And uh, it was, for some reason, because people could actually envision themselves winning a billion dollars, people were able to imagine, what would I do then if I did have this? And then where am I putting my treasures? Because the material, it's whatever now if I have a billion dollars. So now what am I doing in my life? Well, I guess my career is something that I should want to do. I'm not just doing a career just to have stuff. But if I already had this stuff, then what do I want my career to be? And it was fun to see people walk down this path of what their treasure, where their treasure actually lies. And so, yeah, there were some good, deep answers. Like I was saying, I think... Uh, we live in a pretty intellectual culture. Um, here in Cleveland, a lot of my conversations were with college students at Hiram, uh, but it was still um, getting to 
our ultimate treasure? Where is it lying? Why are we pursuing the treasure that we're pursuing? So now, 24 games later, well, now we're a lot of games later. Nobody can win a billion dollars. So I don't know if I can have this conversation anymore because nobody's going to realize they could win a billion dollars and they might just theor- theoreticalize, theorize. Sorry about that. What would actually happen? Um, but yeah, I don't know if any of you had conversations. You could. And this is what I think, what I call gossiping the gospel, okay? I think that this is something that we did a lot when I was a missionary in Italy for a couple years, is gossiping the gospel, bringing up Jesus, bringing up our faith in everyday, seemingly mundane conversations. If Jesus has changed our lives, which I know for a lot of you he has, that'll happen. You might not even realize that you talk about Jesus, and it's not weird to gossip the gospel, and you don't have to just sit there and talk for 15 straight minutes at somebody and tell them exactly what they need to know. Maybe just talk about it a little bit and it sparks a conversation. Um, but that can always be a good thing. And uh, just to refresh a little bit about last week, if you weren't here uh, or you didn't listen to the podcast, um, last week we talked about one of the last parables in chapter 13, the fish being separated. Uh, some fish that are good, that are righteous through Jesus, are put in the good container. They go to heaven. The fish that are wicked, the fish that have not taken Jesus as their Lord, go to hell. They go to the fiery furnace. Um, so there is this reality. We talked about this reality of eternal life or eternal death and how this reality should lead us, again, to some of these gospel conversations with people that we know. I talked about the YouTube video. I know you wanted to watch it. Did you end up finding it? Yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, a famous atheist shared his story of being proselytized, somebody sharing their faith with him, and he has a very interesting response, which is really cool, so if you just search uh, atheist perspective on evangelism on YouTube, five minutes, uh, Penn and Teller, the guy from Penn and Teller, if you know that show, he's the one that shares this story, so find that video, you might enjoy it. After that, we talked about the the following verses where Jesus now speaking with his disciples, those that he is teaching, and he's asking them, do you understand? Do you understand all of these things? It wasn't enough just to hear the words that Jesus is saying, but we need to understand them. And so we talked about understanding how what we know, okay, is not on the opposite side of a spectrum of what we have faith in. Okay, knowledge is not the opposite of faith. And That is one of the reasons why Jesus is telling us we need to be in the word. We need to be learning the words of God. This is why we have expository preaching, exposing the words of God. And so we've been going through chapter, or through Matthew for um, about a year and a half, maybe more now. And that's what we're continuing to do. And uh, I've been reading this book I I mentioned that uh, my cousin had told me about, which is called The Signs of a Healthy Church. I'm going to say it again because I think you should write it down. I think you should read it. I don't want this to be like me, a sales pitch, but literally everything I do I just think is the coolest, so I want everybody to do it. It's a fault of mine, a big pride issue, which we will talk about later. But this book is written by Mark Dever. It's called Signs of a Healthy Church. And church, Signs of a Healthy Church, make creating a healthy church is not just something for a pastor to do, thank God, because we do not have a pastor right now, but it's also not just something for uh, the elders to do. It's something for all the leaders of the church to do. And if you don't know it, you are a leader of this church. If you are here today, you can be. You are a leader in some way. Leadership is not 
only somebody standing up front talking. Again, praise the Lord, because you don't need that to be me right now. It is all of us. So, Mark Dever, Signs of a Healthy Church, maybe 120 pages I'm reading out of my phone, so I don't even know how long it is, but it's not very long, and you would learn a lot. So here we are this week. Um, we're we're going to finish chapter 13. Uh, we broke up last week into growth groups, so you could be familiar with the growth group leaders a little bit. Uh, we won't be doing that today, uh, probably not too often, but hopefully if you were new, you were able to meet somebody new, make a connection. Um, so this week we'll finish Matthew 13, verses 53 to 58. So if you're able, please stand now as we read the Word of God. Um, we stand to read God's words because we believe that they are God's words to us, which makes them holy, and in reverence we stand. Um, we also stand because it is a sign of God moving in and through us. Matthew 13, 53 to 58. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. God, thank you for meeting us here today. Thank you that we can meet as a congregation, as a body to worship you and honor you. I pray that I will step out of the way and your words will be heard and understood. We love you, Jesus, and it's your name we pray. Amen. So what I like to do in smaller group settings is uh, go through Scripture with people and break down the Scripture by answering seven, seven different questions this came from a ministry called I Am Second. I don't know if you've heard of it out of Texas. They make these videos with famous people, people that maybe are actors right now or athletes or musicians or just everyday people that have a story that people can relate to. They make these short videos uh, about how people have put God first and themselves second. I Am Second. And so to accompany these videos, there's... Uh, there's verses, and then they break down these verses by answering seven questions. The first one uh, being, what do you like about these verses? The second one, what do you find confusing or difficult about the passage? The third one, what does this teach us about people? The fourth one, what does this teach us about God? The fifth one, how are we going to obey this passage? Uh, six, who are we going to train with this? And the, and the seventh question is, with whom will you share your faith? And so these seven questions I find to be very good in a smaller group when you're talking to people, interactive, uh, and I think you could do the same thing. Maybe God's calling you to a Bible study because you know one person at work that would want to look at Scripture over lunch. You can go through these verses, and so we can just kind of model that today. I think what we're looking at today, uh, this approach can be very good, even though it might not be as back and forth. Um, it won't be as back and forth as we are preaching through this. Uh, but that is what we'll approach today. So um, the first question, what do we like about the verse? What do I like about this verse? Well, what I like about this verse, the first thing is that we see Jesus going home. I think of somebody going home, and it 
makes me happy. It brings me joy. And so Jesus is coming home to Nazareth, a small town. And I'm from a small town. I'm from the most southwest part of northeast Ohio. Maybe that's a confusing way to describe it. There's Amish people everywhere. There's buggies all over. There's horse poop on all the roads. You can't escape it. That's where I'm from. I'm from this small town. And because it's a small town, a lot of the businesses are owned by people that have grown up there. A lot of people maybe leave for college but come back because it's a great place to raise your family. Um, It's a good place to live. Because of that, a lot of people don't end up leaving. So there aren't too many famous people from our small town. Um, Somebody that I would say is maybe the most famous person from our town, I don't know if you would agree with me, Thomas, but I would say it's Nate Torrance. Somebody, is that okay? Nate Torrance, he's an actor. After he uh, left our hometown, he moved to Hollywood. And before you know it, we saw him on uh, commercials for Golden Grams, eating Golden Grams, just seeing him on the screen. It was so funny. It was the funniest Golden Grams commercial I've ever seen. And then he's in these Capital One commercials with David Spade, like David Spade, one degree from Chris Farley. That's incredible, right? Like he was with David Spade. He's doing it, you know? And then he's in this Volkswagen commercial where he's laughing hysterically the whole time. It won an, it won an award for best commercial or something. See, none of you know this, but I do because he's from my town. So I see him on the screen and I just get excited. I get, I'm like filled with joy just seeing him. I just smile. He wouldn't even have to be doing anything. All of a sudden he's in movies. He was in Get Smart. Um, he was in another movie I forget. I was just watching with friends. We're in the theater and he showed up and I was like, guys, I know him. He was friends with my sister. That he's from my town. You know, I'm going crazy because he's a hometown hero. This is what happens when you're from a small town. If you're not from a small town, you might not quite get what I'm saying. But even Cleveland, I think we take ownership of people from Cleveland quite a bit. Um, Maybe we don't. Kid Cuddy, I don't know if you have any Cuddy fans. I love that Cuddy is from Cleveland, and I think he's so good. Does he really have the best flow? Maybe not. I think he does, but maybe it's because I'm a homer. I'm not quite sure. But this is what we see here. We, we see Jesus going home. And so I think about this, and I like this. I like that Jesus is going back. Um, in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verses 12 to 23, we kind of see verses about Jesus' ministry beginning. Um, I don't think we have them up there. It doesn't matter. But Jesus began his ministry after John was arrested. And so it says that that was when Jesus began his ministry. He left Nazareth, went to Capernaum, and that was where he started his teaching, started, um, started ministry. And he, being a, he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, the Bible tells us that Jesus taught that it wasn't just John the Baptist running like a wild man through the forest with locusts and wild honey, screaming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what Jesus shared. This is what Jesus taught. And so he began his ministry after leaving home. And so this time, I like this because he is coming home. He's a hometown hero, right? It's a joyous occasion for the small town. He's back. And so what I like about this is what I now find confusing. I like that he's coming back, but um, how is he welcomed, okay? This is the part that doesn't make sense to me. What happens next is something that doesn't make sense. He teaches in the synagogue. Everyone is astonished, right? He comes back, he teaches in the synagogue, which is what he did when he went places. Everybody was astonished, and they all stand and applaud. And they all say, whoa, you're, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. Thank you for teaching us all the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, no, that's actually not what they do. 
And so I don't get this. It doesn't make sense. Instead of being astonished in a good way, they are actually full of contempt. They start rattling off a series of six different questions. And they're not asking questions. They're questioning. I see a difference in this in our language and the English language. I think there's a difference in our verbiage between asking and questioning. If somebody were to come up to me and they would say, hey, can I ask you about your job? I would say, well, yeah, sure, shoot away. You know, what do you want to know about my job? But if somebody walked up to me and they said, hey, can I question you about your job? I'd say, hold on, hold on, what do you mean? Like, obviously, he already has a preconceived notion about me or maybe about my job, but if he's going to question about my job, there, there's something weird here. I don't know what's going on. And so there is a difference here between asking questions and between questioning. And so what they're doing is very much questioning God. Okay, And this is something where I don't want us to get confused. It is not, okay, it is not a bad thing to ask questions. We're going to talk about why what they're doing is a bad thing by questioning. But asking questions isn't bad. Um, when I was in, in Italy work, doing ministry with college students, talking to, talking to kids, it was very common in conversations talking about spirituality. I'd ask about Jesus. And instead of talking about Jesus, we'd talk about um, the church or the Pope or religion, spiritual, everything that we talked about, we would talk about a lot of things and it was always filled with a lot of questions and it was not uncommon for somebody to say to me, thank you, and thank you, thank you for what? And people would say, thank you for letting me ask questions. Well, what do you, what do you mean letting you ask questions? And it was very common that they would say, well, I couldn't ever ask questions growing up. If I were in school or if I asked my parents, if I were in church and I asked a question, people would say, don't ask questions, just have faith. And again, like we're saying, faith and answers are not, and understanding, they are not on opposite sides of a spectrum. And, and so I don't understand that. I don't understand what it would be like to grow up not being allowed to ask questions that you have about faith. Asking questions is not a bad thing, and we see this a lot in the Psalms. We see this a lot from David. Okay, David King, David, a man after God's own heart, did not live a perfect life. He did not have an easy life. Psalm 6-3, near the beginning of Psalms, he shares, and he says, My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? He's asking God how long. He's not questioning God. This isn't a rhetorical question. He hasn't already decided that God isn't going to help him. He, he's asking God how long. He's honest. God cares way more about us being honest with him than us pretending to have all the answers. So he asks God how long. By the end of this psalm, he's answering his own question with God's promises. God's promises from the word of God that God has given him. And so it's not a bad thing to ask questions. It's a good thing. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So that's what we should do. We should ask questions. We should seek answers. But what are you saying then, Philip? What are you saying that these verses teach then? What do these teach about people? This is our third question. So you're telling me that it's okay to ask questions, but they're not asking questions. Where do we draw the line well, we're drawing the line here with the rhetorical questions. What are these questions getting at? The questions that they're asking aren't going to benefit anybody listening. These questions were just showing their contempt of Jesus by calling him out, first of all, on his education and his works. They're not denying that he's intelligent. He's saying things that are astonishing them, and they're not 
denying that he did miracles, but they're asking questions because they just don't think it could be possible. Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get these mighty works? They call him out on where he's from. They say, for his humble origins, he's from, where he's from, that doesn't mean anything. And he says, wait, his dad was just a carpenter. They call him out on his father being a carpenter. Well, his father was a carpenter, yes, but he's also from the line of David. If you look at Luke one twenty-seven, So this should mean that there is some honor in who his father is. But they've already made up their mind. They're going to ignore that fact. Instead, they're just going to focus on, yeah, well, he's just a carpenter. And then they call him out on his, on his mother, um, Actually, they don't call him out on his mother. They call him out on his mother's name. She's called Mary. <sighs> what a common name that is. Loser. He can't, be, he can't be who he says he is. That doesn't make sense. And then they question him on his brothers as well. They're just working men. He calls them out on his sisters. And so all of these questions lead to what? The questions lead to them taking offense at Jesus because there was so much contempt they had already made up their mind so what this is teaching about people is that we as people me as a person in this broken world we're quick to judge we're quick to make up our minds and if we've already made up our minds we will never hear the truth we'll never see the truth we'll never um, see what really matters we'll just come up with excuses and reasons that we like because Coming up with a reason that I like is easier than admitting that I can learn something. It's easier than submitting to God. This is what it's teaching us about people. So they despised him because he was one of them. They knew Jesus in all of his humanity. Before he started his ministry, they saw him as a carpenter. They saw the chair that he made that still wobbles. And maybe it, well, I don't know, maybe it, was, maybe it didn't wobble. But they saw his humanity. They saw him cut his hands when he's hammering a nail. They saw all these things. They saw him as a human, and because of this, they could not get over it. They couldn't get over this hump. They couldn't get over this fact that Jesus is claiming divinity, and yet they've seen him as human. This can't be right. So what does this teach us about God? If this is what Jesus is saying, what is this teaching us about God if we're learning about people? Well, this is, first of all, teaching us that God exists as the Trinity, not an easy concept. He exists as the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Son took on flesh, and he became human, fully human. Jesus was so visibly human that these, his own hometown that should be cheering for him and loving the fact that he's representing their small town, they couldn't get past it. They couldn't even accept him as being somebody. They wanted to diminish him. They wanted to see him as nothing. And we're at a loss to account for all these marvelous teachings and all his miraculous works. They were at a loss to account for these because their extreme familiarity with his humanity made it hard for them to believe or see his divinity. So he didn't come, okay, either as just this semi-divine being. We know that he's human. He wasn't Professor Dumbledore just floating around like, here, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of God. You know I'm not human. No, he was walking, he was living. Um, and that was how they saw him. So he was altogether ordinary. He was a concrete figure of history. And we know this, not just from the Bible. There's plenty of other texts written that have written about Jesus. It's hard to find somebody that's going to question Jesus' existence as man because there is so much proof of him existing as man. So he came as man, and why did Jesus come as man? Was this teaching us about that? 
Well, he came as man to live a perfect, blameless life, which we can't do. So God sends Jesus. Jesus comes in the flesh, 100% man, to live this perfect life, to understand what we as humans go through, to feel our pain, to feel our struggle, to feel the brokenness of this world. But he did this, and he was still perfect. He never gave in to temptation, which we can do. Jesus was perfect. We, as people, can't be perfect, although a lot of people have tried. Um, When I was in college, uh, we read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Anybody ever read that before? I don't know. Um, But read that, oh, a few people have. Uh, We read that in class, and one of the things Benjamin Franklin wanted to do as a deist was prove that he could become perfect. So he made this whole gamut of, uh, of different virtues. And so the virtues that he decided cover the whole spectrum of perfection would be temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. So his goal with these 13 virtues was to perfect each virtue for a week. So week one, his first one, is temperance. So for one week, I'm going to perfect temperance. And so this is what he did. By the end of 13 weeks, he will be perfect. So you might know where he struggled. The ending's already given away. He wrote an autobiography. So he obviously struggled a little bit with humility. He struggled a little bit with pride. And he does write about this in his autobiography. He says that even in his perfection of humility, now that he perfected humility, he was actually prideful within his perfection of it. So he concludes that Jesus couldn't have been perfect. You know, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek about this. Since he couldn't do this, nobody could be perfect. Well, that is an interesting conclusion to come to. It's a conclusion that you come to if you've already made up your mind about what you want the answer to be. He wasn't doing this. He wasn't going to ask questions. So, so Jesus, how could you have been perfect? Are there answers about that? No, he had already decided since he couldn't do it, nobody could. And we do know that Jesus lived a perfect life. It says it in in the Word of God. Hebrews 4.15 tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we refer to Jesus as our high priest, the high priest that is going to, to atone for sins for other people the ultimate high priest who atones for our sins as humans. And the only way he can atone for human sin was to come in the flesh, was to come as human and be the ultimate atonement for each of us as humans, to take our place and die a death that each of us deserve. He went and he conquered sin and death. Three days later, he is resurrected from the dead, and there's no power that's going to do that other than God, other than divinity. And this is why Jesus, as God, as somebody claiming divinity, can say, lay down your cross and follow me. That's not heretical if you're God. That is heretical if you're not. That'd be very heretical for me to tell somebody, hey, lay down your cross and follow me. Okay, that's not good. Even if I'm following Jesus, I don't say that. I'm not God. What I can say is, hey, lay down your cross and follow Jesus, and I'm doing the same thing, so we can do it together. That's okay. But you're not going to claim that you can do that unless you're claiming divinity. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
He's claiming divinity, but others can't accept this. Others can't see past his humanity because they related to him almost too well in his hometown. So if his humanity then means that we can relate to God, his divinity means that we need to submit to him. So if he is who he says he is, yeah, we can relate to him as human, but we also need to submit to him as God. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to submit to him and find all of our fulfillment in him. Again, this treasure. Jesus wants to see, wants us to see him as the ultimate treasure in life. And so what is this teaching us about God? Again, it's teaching us that God, it's teaching us that Jesus is fully man, fully human, and he's fully divine. And then finally, these final two verses uh, tell us something about the character of God as well. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. This is where it can get a little tricky, okay? He did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. This doesn't mean that God could not have done mighty works because of their unbelief. It's saying that he did not do them, okay? There's plenty of times that, that God, that he did mighty works without people believing, okay? The earth was created. <laughs> we have the sun. We have the water. We have the skies. We have animals, plants, we have people. God created that without people believing him. So he could do that. So it's not saying he couldn't have, but just that he didn't do them, and he didn't do that because of their unbelief. He knew already that their minds were made up. So if we already have our minds made up, then how is it possible that we could believe afterwards? Why would we see a work what is our even definition of what a mighty work is? Winning a billion dollars in that bracket is probably not a mighty work in God's eyes. And so what can stand in the way of us, of, of this? Brian, was, we were just talking about this, the second song that we, that we sang today. What can stand in the way of us and God? We can. We can stand in our own way when we close off our minds, when we've already made up our decisions so at the same time, while I'm telling you, we believe, we, if people that don't believe will not, maybe, may not receive a mighty work, does that mean that if we do believe, for sure, God will perform a mighty work? Sometimes things don't go our ways, and so this brings up a big question that we have in today's society. Almost everybody that I speak to, that, um, so a big struggle is why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why is that? If people really believe, then why would a hurricane come through? Why would Cleveland receive snow 27 weeks in a row if people really believed? Is it, so they, people must not believe then, because if people did believe, he'd do it. But So some people aren't believing, so it's your fault for because there's one person in Cleveland that's not believing. But if they all did, then we wouldn't have snow. Well, no, that's not what I'm saying either. It's not... Just that you believe doesn't mean that it's going to happen either. It could happen, but again, what is our definition of what a mighty work is? We're not God. I'm not God. I don't know what God's plan is. I couldn't even imagine how to come up with a plan. 
while I couldn't imagine what it would be like to see people that you love go to hell, which we talked about last week. That's hard. But at the same time, I couldn't imagine having sent my son to die for everybody on earth, people that are spitting in your face. How does God do this? His plan is so far beyond ours. Isaiah 55, verse 9, God tells us, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Heavens and the earth are really far away. You're not going to find a distance for that. And in the same way, God's thoughts are above our thoughts. So what are we trying to teach from this? What are we trying to learn from this? So you're telling me if I believe, even if I believe, it might not happen anyway. And if I don't believe, there's still a chance that it does happen. So what do I do? What, well, what do you, so I just sit here and wait? What, what's going on? Well, what we do is we submit to the sovereignty of God. This teaches us a characteristic about God. This teaches us that God is sovereign. He's all-knowing. He is all-controlling all-powerful, and he needs to be the authority of my life. I need to be pursuing God. Jesus didn't die so that I can find fulfillment just in the fruit that comes from knowing God. Jesus died so that I can know Jesus. If we don't submit to the sovereignty and the authority of Jesus, then we will never understand the tension between belief and seeing mighty works happen. But we do know that it's possible that if we've already made up our mind, then it won't happen. This idea of their unbelief, as Jesus points out, is not that they don't believe in anything. Okay, they, they do have belief. They just didn't believe that Christ was more than human. They only saw him as a simple field. They didn't see a treasure that was in this field. And so there were treasures that they believed in, that they wanted to believe in, that they thought were greater than Jesus. And we do this too. What are treasures that we have, what are treasures that you have in your own life that you take before Jesus? This is what sin is, right? Sin is what our hearts do, what our heart longs to do when we've decided that Jesus isn't enough. And so their unbelief made them offended by Jesus. What are some things that offend you? Ask questions about those. Different than questioning and having already made up your mind. Ask questions. So what do we learn about God? He's fully man, he is fully divine, and he is sovereign. So this leads to the fifth of seven questions. How will we obey this text? Um, I think our first application here is that we should see Jesus as human. We should be able to relate to Jesus. We should know that Jesus lived this life that we lived. You never know how hard temptation is unless you've never given in. Jesus never gave in to temptation. And so how often do I want to just, I, I know, I mean, maybe it's gossiping, maybe, maybe it will offend them, but I really want them to know what they did to me. I really want them to know how I was wronged. and Yeah, so I'll just say it. And then you say it and you forget about it, right? You don't have to worry about it anymore because you gave in to temptation. You just did it. And there we went to gossip. 
It's pretty easy to see. So if we can see Jesus having done that, we can trust in that. Okay? Second thing we want to do is uh, not only see him as human, but see Jesus as divine. Fully human, yes, fully divine. Allow yourself, if you haven't done so already, to submit to Christ, to give your life to Jesus. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he's worth following. And life, and life more abundant comes to us. But we don't follow Jesus just for a more abundant life. We follow Jesus for Jesus. Finally, the last thing uh, we want to do as a body is get into the word. Get into the word of Christ. We need to continue growing in the promises of God. And this happens when we're in the word daily. When we read his promises daily. We have 66 love letters that God wrote to us. And it can be on your cell phone, on your Kindle, in a real leather-bound book. They're all good. But we need to be in this daily. We need to be learning about God daily. Yes, I threw on this book that you should read. A book's great, and I, think, I really think it would be a good thing to read. But if you're going to read that book instead of the Bible, don't read that book. Read the Word of God daily. It's really hard for me. I'm way too extroverted. Way too extroverted. I am so extroverted that it is hard for me to sit alone and read. And it is something that I struggle with to get in the word daily, and I admit that to you, so hold me accountable to that. Please ask me, <laughs> are you doing it? Because we all need to be doing it, and that's something else that we get. The sixth question, who will you train with this passage? It's not enough, like we said, just to hear God's word, but we need to understand it. What's one of the reasons we understand it? So that we can tell others about it. So who's somebody you know that didn't come today um, that would benefit from this? That would enjoy to hear what you learned about today. Who's somebody else that you can train in this? And, uh, and finally, the, the seventh question, with whom will you share your faith? Okay, somebody that you wouldn't share this with because maybe they aren't there yet. That's okay. Our, our goal is not just to see somebody come to Christ. Our goal is to walk with somebody through life as they journey, as we are journeying towards Jesus. And as that happens, people will come to Christ. But it has to start by getting over this awkwardness of asking what somebody thinks about Jesus. Do you think he's human? Do you think he's divine? Where does it go from there? So think about that. Think about who will you share this with. Um, we're, I'll be going to lunch somewhere after this. We're not going to break up in groups right now, but there are growth groups. Again, the growth group leaders are awesome. They're all inviting. They have cool places to meet, and you're going to meet, meet them more next week, but even in the meantime, um, go to a growth group if you can. Continue this dialogue. Go to lunch. Continue this dialogue. Continue this dialogue with the person sitting next to you. If you haven't submitted to Christ yet, and you'd like to, talk to me afterwards. Talk to the elders afterwards, Thomas or Jeremy. Talk to the growth group leaders afterwards. Um, talk to somebody. Don't just let it sit there and not do anything about it. 